A warning to all listeners. This is a podcast about movies. There will be spoilers. Obviously. If you don't want to know what happens in a movie whose title appears in the title of the podcast, you shouldn't listen. Obviously. Heed our advice. Well, here we are again on another episode of For the Love of Pavlov! I was very enthusiastic and heartfelt on that one. <laughs> I'm trying to get into it. I'm trying to Joaquin Phoenix my way through this. Jesus. So this is our show where we talk about movies, about real-life animals, and uh, try to make sense of when the movie ends and the real-life animal behavior begins. Key there is try. Try. Makes sense. I mean... We're not experts. <sighs> yeah. So, Norm, you picked the movie this time around. I did. It was my turn to pick. And so I went back to uh, 10th grade English. And I don't believe this was really part of the curriculum. I think this was dealer's choice for our teacher's part. But she made us read Never Cry Wolf, which is a, what, 1943 story. The guy involved wrote it. He presents it as a factual memoir of his experiences observing Arctic wolves in uh, subarctic Canada. We read it pretty uncritically as fact. Our teacher was emphatic that the critics just didn't like wolves and that the book was quite factual. Mm -hmm. And come 83, Disney produced a live action, very, I would say, extremely faithful adaptation. Relatively so, yeah. Give or take some character compression and some time compression, which I think you nearly always get when you go from book to movie. Totally. And I thought it would present an interesting and somewhat subversive way to confront anthropomorphization of wild animals without, you know, the typical Disney magic of fully anthropomorphic characters. Yeah, it's very much anthropomorphic from the perspective of our main dude that we're following in this adventure. It's just kind of how he interacts with the wolves. How, well, how he says he interacted well, with the wolves. Yeah. Certainly how he views the wolves and records their behavior mm-hmm. and kind of makes his field notes. But more than that, he and the movie by extension take great lengths to try to get us to accept that anthropomorphization as fact and something that we would all see if we went out there and spent time effectively living with wolves as this guy pretends he did well and what's really bonkers is in the book multiple times he talks about i'm a scientist i must remain objective and then in the same sentence he's like but (laughs) and then goes off on this totally subjective rant (laughs) he's he's got an excuse for every situation he does and it's fascinating the extent to which he lampshades the fact that he's he knows how to be a better scientist than he's choosing to actually be. He actively makes these choices every time. Oh, yeah. When he's going to compromise on, you know, how he records his notes, the extent to which he fulfills the mission that he uh, describes yeah. as <laughs> being set to him. <laughs> and he, I mean, he's a remarkable it's, character. It's like, okay, it's the 1940s, whatever, whatever. But at the same time, you still have scientists from that time period who are doing exactly. actual real science and completing their missions as opposed to this guy who's like, yeah, I'm at the end of my time here. I was supposed to be collecting <laughs> all this plant data. I didn't. I will collect a day's worth. And then that's it. Eh, there's a lot of shrug good enough. <laughs> this is yeah. the quintessential good enough for government work movie. Yeah. Slash book. So just a little bit of context. The story is 
in the mid 1940s mm-hmm. they are noticing and by they i think it's the canadian government yes wh- he's whatever their the canadian government wildlife yeah. agency would be they're noticing a, a sharp decline in the population of caribou in the subarctic norths of canada yeah their hypothesis wolves wolves be eating all the caribou so, so many caribou. What if we had a bureaucratic scientific excuse to go exterminate wolves? Very exciting. So they dispatch Farley Mowat, author and title character. In the book, he is Tyler. Right. They recast him <laughs> as Tyler for whatever reason. Probably because they wanted to distance the phony author from this character that's being portrayed. And as we get to discover in the third act, hanging brain on the regular. Yes. So they dispatch this guy to the remotest remotest frozen wastes of northern Canada. Yeah, it's the border of Manitoba and Nunavut, like pretty up there. For those of you in the neighborhood. And what yeah. what are the specifics of his mission? Because he's a little vague about it in the film. I think, again, because they're being so faithful to the book, there's a ton of voiceover. I compare it to a Batman comic pre-Robin, where it's like, <laughs> you can just watch this guy in black, set against a black backdrop, <laughs> thinking ponderously to himself. Yeah. Or you can kind of have him think out loud via voiceover. So they capture the author's voice by literally having their lead actor just read basically excerpts from the book yeah so basically what's happening is at the time he's working for the dominion wildlife service based out of ottawa which is now the canadian wildlife service and he is given this mission to go to this remote subarctic region to observe wolves and get a sense of what their diet is you know are they eating the caribou to what degree this alone is a very interesting premise to me because Suffice to say, they can be confident that wolves are carnivores, if nothing else. Right. And there's a question of whether they're eating, what, the predominant or largest land mammal prey creature? Mm -hmm. That's their question? Yeah, basically. And it was was hard for me to find any information about when did we learn all of these things about wolves that we do know now. Right. And I think that's kind of the case for a lot of animals. It's like, when did we actually learn their diet, their life history, their biology, all this stuff? Yeah. So it's like, it's the 1940s. And I think it's it's just a general diet study, but with the context of, you know, are they contributing significantly to the declines in caribou herds? Right. And if not, like, what are they eating? And so he's there to do wolf observations. Well, that's, and... that's the interrogative part of it for, for the scientific community. <laughs> But the title card that they present as kind of setting the stage for this thing is if it if it's wolves, then we get to go kill them. Yeah. The, the question is, can the government sanction aggressive hunting of wolves yeah. to protect the native caribou population? Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say native. I think they're both native populations. Yes, they are. So basically, the, the government agency is looking to see if they should take sides. Yeah. And they dispatch mm-hmm. Mr. Mowat to... Gather the requisite data, which, as you said, is observational. You know, does he see them hunting? Does he see them killing and or eating caribou? Mm -hmm. He's supposed to do some necropsies, kind of like Jaws, actually. Yeah. And figure out what's in the tummy. Yeah, he sent to do necropsies, which in the book they call autopsies, which is not correct for animals. (laughs) And I read that and I was like, "Uh -uh, no. He's also tasked with looking at scat to find diet-based items in their poop. 
And, you know, while he's there, they're like, yeah, you could do some plant studies as well, which he's not trained in. And they're like, here you go. And of course, you know, that's one of the things where he just leaves until the end, which, you know, if he's not a plant guy, it's just entirely inappropriate. But they're also sending a solo dude into the subarctic who clearly has no idea what he's doing based on his little like cardigans he's wearing when they drop him off. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) No one would do that even in the 40s. One thing I find exhausting both about his his writing style and the movie, again, very faithful, is this weird, broad kind of you had to be there type of comedy (laughs) it's the kind of thing that i can see my mom laughing and just cackling at totally and at the same time gasping and going oh my gosh oh my gosh (laughs) you know they're they're in this little (laughs) they're in this little you know single prop airplane it's a two-seater and they can barely take off in the beginning and so the pilot is having him just throw unmarked luggage off yes so they can get their weight down oh jeez. and it's the kind of thing that i find like 30 percent plausible but they they play it for such big laughs and i think that's also when we first meet the real hero of this movie which is the fully audio yeah. uh, i think i pointed i don't know if i pointed this out at the time but he's got all these crates he's supposed to be going you know roughing it in the arctic and he packed almost none of his own gear maybe some clothes and yet every crate that gets thrown off the plane, you hear that perfect studio of breaking glass. <laughs> every single crate they throw. Yeah, I don't think you brought that up to me before. Yeah. Jeez. But that's the thing. The movie itself is fairly dry. Mm-hmm. You're mostly watching a Nat Geo documentary. There's a lot yeah. of just gorgeous wildlife photography. Oh, yeah. They do but wildlife job. photographers aren't audio processors so they're not going out there with boom mics that's all fully right that's recorded and mixed after the fact to give texture to what you're seeing man the idea of these folks wandering around the subarctic with a big boom mic just like i gotta gotta get all that did you get that sound (laughs) i don't know it's a funny image in my head (laughs) but that does happen now you know yeah you you see some of those uh it still is funny those documentaries where they're they're trying to look really closely at how a cricket sings or yeah whale song you know when when sound is a character then they're they're doing the real deal but if they're not calling attention to the sound in the context of a documentary it's usually fully so if they, they've got those extreme close-ups of termites right more than half the time they've probably got someone just like pouring sand over broken glass and then they mix that down and that's the sound that of creepy the creepy crawly sound. yeah termites <laughs> chewing through wood yeah so that's fully right mm-hmm. and this movie is so close. If they would just cut some narrative and definitely change, rewrite all of the voiceover. <laughs> yes. It's a very good nature documentary. It is. Yeah. Beautiful, classic film photography, wide shots. Not a lot of the Peter Jackson <laughs> helicopter <laughs> shots, but enough yeah. that you really, it's very immersive in that sense. We were commenting on that frequently when we were watching it. It's just yeah. how great the filmmaking is you could pause almost any frame where the sole character is not on screen and you have a a half decent postcard so he's supposed to find out about their diet there's a lot of plotting along in the beginning where i could tell you were kind of waiting for animals to really i was feature i was really (laughs) on the edge of my seat and you just kept telling me no it's gonna pick up just 
real fast. Mm-hmm. We're going to rock it into it. And yeah. so, like, boy, did we ever. <laughs> and what do you reckon oh. was, was the tipping point? Because we, we watch a lot of his foibles setting up his tent and getting rescued by uh, a local native who doesn't really speak English, which gives Farley, you know, carte blanche to put his own words in his mouth. Yeah. And discuss what their relationship is and what he might be thinking. So one of the moments that really kind of made me cock mm-hmm. my head to the side is, you know, you think a wolf movie and they're going to use huskies at some point. Yeah. Like, that's just kind of a thing. And there are sled dogs in this. Oh, yeah, there are so, sled like, dogs. Yeah, there's there's um, actual real huskies playing huskies. Yes. But there's there are like two separate scenes where he has nightmares that he's being <laughs> yeah. attacked by wolves. And, it, you know, it's kind of a distorted thing because it's dreamland. Yeah. Things are a little lots off. Lots of whip pans and, and handheld yeah. camera. And panic. he's actually yeah. having dogs jumping on him. So, like, of course, it's going to be huskies, like, whatever. But one of the dogs in it both times is distinctly, without a doubt, a German shepherd. <laughs> and I can't get over it. I really, I really can't. I, I don't know of any other wolf-based movie that is like, yeah, throw a German Shepherd in there. No one will notice. And it's like, it's the most obvious thing. It is crazy because the access to real wolves is there. Most of yeah. the wolf photography is what they call tame wolves or wolves yeah. raised in captivity. Yeah. So they have real life wolves. They also have real life huskies and kind of make a point in the first act of the movie to distinguish the tame, loyal, highly domesticated sled dogs Mm -hmm. from the wild wolves. Yes. Because when he first encounters them, he thinks those are wolves and he freaks out and he hides under his canoe on the Mm -hmm. ice until uh, our our local Inuit guy kind of outs him as a putz and then (laughs) takes him to his house where... Farley Mowat slash Tyler just sort of puts his feet up and makes himself at home. Like, well. Pretty classic. <laughs> this is my house now. Thanks. Just leaning into history real hard. So it is weird that when they're showing his ambiguousness toward the whole mission yeah. and his fear of wolves that he has these nightmares and, you know, probably some of those shots are sped up, you know, B-roll of the actual wolves. Mm-hmm. Some of it, I think, was definitely the huskies. Yeah. And, you know, there's it's like an orgy. There's heads and tails and paws kind of going in every direction. And it's cut very aggressively to make it clear that it's a nightmare. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, you see what I can only assume is a trained attack dog. <laughs> since Most they're using likely. This, this German shepherd. Yeah. And they can get it to growl and, you know, grab a branch on command or whatever. It's attack just the like, camera. I'm sorry, but you can train a lot of animals to do s- behaviors <laughs> like that. And so it's just so lazy okay. out of all this like cinematography they're doing and all these wolves and the freaking caribou that we will get to. They're, oh, I just so can't believe it. I'm going to, I have to punch back on this one in the spirit of filmmaking for a couple reasons. Okay. One, you have a much more sophisticated body of knowledge that you're coming from in your understanding of training capacity and wild and domestic. I think the world has come a long way since the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that as a slight against the 80s. I'm just saying, you know, with the internet and everything, yeah. knowledge is moving quickly. Or the the acquisition and, and documentation of knowledge has really exponentially exploded. So I can see how they might feel they had to make certain compromises there. Right. But moreover, it is a time-honored tradition to use stunt doubles. And I would say... For an attack sequence, which is what the nightmare is supposed to be, it makes sense to use the best you've got. Yeah. And it's not unusual for you to put an absolute non-match for your lead. (laughs) 
you know, in a wig, even in a big rubber mask like yeah. Mike Myers in Halloween <laughs> and just kind of go, it's going to move fast. We're going to cut quickly and it's a wide shot. Yeah. And I, I feel like we can excuse a little German Shepherd slipping into some of these scenes when they're trying to convey, you know, animal aggression and fear and a nightmare. Yeah. So. No, that. It's silly. Yeah. If you know at all what you're looking for, it stands out. Yep. But I think the average person is watching a movie and not looking to out the stunt double. So I yeah. I give them the benefit of the doubt. That's fair. And so let it be done. That's part of the reason that I enjoy watching animal movies with you is that I'm just sitting there complaining the entire time about like <laughs> this, this, this. Even in a pure like kids movie, anthropomorphic, it right. doesn't matter. And I'm right. like, mallards don't migrate that far. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you get that with everything, right? If you watch a movie with a real Apple nerd and it could be like, oh, this was set in 2005. And they're like, well, that's the wrong model of iPhone in that shot, actually. <laughs> it's like, does that really matter? Is that remotely consequential for yeah. the substance of the the movie? What are we really communicating here? Yeah. There's no spoiler alert. There's no dog fights. There's, there's no attacks. There is a hunting sequence at the end, but... He never gets attacked yeah. by wolves. That is thematically his prejudice, his bias coming into this. He sees them as aggressive killers and he learns yeah. to respect them and he's confident that he's earned their respect and it's ridiculous. <laughs> so thematically, they're just trying to communicate those ideas. So check in a German Shepherd, have it attack the camera. You get a great first person view of an angry dog, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, we can that's let fair. it go. But our... Our first wolf friend enters a, a bit of time after that, you know, as he's kind of flopping around through the subarctic mm-hmm. looking for wolves, but clearly 100% clueless. Like, <laughs> how did he get this job with the government in the first place? Who the f*** knows? <laughs> <laughs> and this is, again, that kind of broad comedy where you can either accept it on its face and go, oh, my gosh. Yeah. How would you find a wolf? I don't know. So I relate to this guy. Yeah. It's like. He's supposed to be doing a job here. Right. He's not supposed to be insert literally any person, throw on some snowshoes and have him find a wolf. He's supposed to know how to do all this stuff and survive out there in the elements. He's given all of this equipment to do so that he chucks (laughs) out of a plane. And, you know, you'd think he'd be at least a little resourceful as much as as he could be. But he comes across as like a worse Chris McCandless. (laughs) Well, a very much worse Chris McCandless because not only did he not independently prep, but he avails himself throughout the entire film of the assistance and benevolence of the yes. the two. Well, one one truly local guy and one guy who I think is his nephew. Something who, like who that. Who kind of lives Family between, member. yeah, the, the wilderness and the nearest yeah. town. And doesn't really ever take time to express any gratitude or humility, no. but just kind of goes, oh. So nice to have natives here. Yeah. (laughs) In the in the book he pays them for their services, but then the way he writes about them is still very yikes. Do you actually appreciate them or not, bro? Very outsider, condescending, noble savage type outlook. Which I think gels with what he describes as expecting from the wolves Mm -hmm. and his very literal dances with wolves character progression Yes, through this. Yes. I think that's the worst part of this, is that it basically purports to be a real-life factual memoir that's dances with wolves, where he, he goes to these, you know, far, par- sparsely populated areas and just becomes one with nature <laughs> and becomes the ultimate, you know, at first he was afraid of wolves and now he he is their spirit person. 
or something. He's yeah. He's their compatriot. It's so f***ing exhausting. So after a bit of time of him just doing whatever he's trying to do, he does finally he does finally run into a wolf, and so it's like, yeah, all right, I did it. And so he decides to set up camp. He sees the wolf go into a den. Mm. Um, so he's like, I'm gonna watch them from afar. He has this whole thing of. This is Protocol how I was says. this is how I was instructed to watch wolves but you know they're outmaneuvering me they're it's just so hard to watch them that I'm changing the rules and it's like oh my god yeah the, one of many examples <laughs> of his smug ineptitude where he's just yes. like the squares back at headquarters don't understand wolves uh, like I do Jesus now that I'm in the field I have a whole new awareness and understanding get uh, out of here and so it was him setting up his camp where it's like Oh boy, it's starting. Here we go on our adventure. <laughs> it's wolf watching it's time. It's wolf time. And so the I think one of the first times outside of the German Shepherd that I screamed <laughs> was the whole like him marking his territory yes. thing. Oh my god, kill me now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so break that down though. Yeah. Because I think this is a sequence that's straight out of the book. It and is. they filmed it, it is. just as written, completely oh, totally. uncritically. Yeah. So basically, he sees the wolf sniffing around his stuff, kind of curious, checking things out. And then he sees the wolf scent marking, urinating yeah, on lift some a of leg, his stuff. Get just, a little squirt. Yeah, stuff around his tent, all of that. His stuff. His stuff. And an actual quote from this <laughs> is, this is a territorial dispute, and he had fired the first shot. Mm-hmm. Bro, take it more seriously and personally. Like, holy <laughs> shit. It's, um, it's a, I hate to attribute this style of, like, comedy and writing to all boomers, but it does seem quintessentially, like, you hear it in Stephen King and literally any movie where there's voiceover, mm-hmm. you know? It sounds like the Sandlot thinking back on this magical time in your life. <laughs> uh, it sounds, and I'm comparing it unfavorably with these, by the way, because it can right. work. Christmas Story fabulously fun classic movie with that voiceover where yeah. you're kind of you know outing yourself as an unreliable narrator you're describing it one way mm-hmm. while it's un- unfolding a different way on on film haha ha. <laughs> and he does that through this whole thing and so he comes out you know he's he moved into their territory set up his tent like an absolute idiot <laughs> wolf comes in and pisses on a couple of the crates that he hadn't chucked out of the plane in the in the opening sequence and he goes, oh, it's just like the schoolyard. I got to stand up for myself. We're I got to go take his lunch fire. money. So that's yeah. what he does. So yeah, wolf pees on stuff. He goes around and pees on stuff. And he's just like, how does the wolf pee on so many things at once? And it takes me, I have to drink so much tea to do this. And it's like, yeah, yeah. bro, that's not <laughs> that's not what people do. And it's, it's cut like a rocky training sequence where he's like yeah. pounding tea and ethyl alcohol. <laughs> and then running around and peeing on trees and doing, this I forget how lap. big of an area, but it's basically it like, matter. if you tried to hit the front row around an entire football stadium, something. it's, I'm it's sure. something like that. Yeah. Like he's trying to piss an actual perimeter. Yeah. And so he does that. And then the wolf comes back and is like sniffing at it, interested, and then remarks it. And he's like, oh, but, here we go. But? <laughs> but that's just absolute nonsense well (laughs) the the specific nonsense though is he notices that the wolf is marking on the opposite side of each object he marked so if if he pissed on the east side of a tree 
the wolf comes along and hits the west side. Yeah. And he reckons that's a sign of acknowledgement, mutual respect, yep. and understanding. We have our line between our territories and we understand each other about it. Just I, like oh my God. standing up to the schoolyard bully and not yeah. blinking, you know, calling his bluff. Yeah. And he nods and goes, okay, we understand each other now. So this was like the first thing that I was like, okay, <laughs> I need to actually look at this. Let me research. It's It's got that classic like Mark Twain hint of plausibility yes. wrapped in a package of absurdity. And it yes. just makes you go, okay, I know this is nonsense, but I don't know where to draw the line on uh -huh. exactly which yeah. part of this becomes nonsense. And so, I mean, it's nonsense to the point of like, Clearly, there are no studies involving human urine and wolf reaction. Why would there be? Exactly. <laughs> but on when he makes these blithe comments about being a bad scientist but kind of knowing better, mm -hmm. to me, that's one of the more insidious parts of yeah. his story because he's he's demonstrating a strong enough, accurate enough awareness of the state of the scientific community that he knows he can make these weird hyper-specific claims that... Parts of it correspond to known and measured reality. Right. Like accepted scientific fact, like dogs mark, wolves mark, no, 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 they have a territory. And then he can kind of play yo-yo with it. Mm -hmm. And he knows no one really has the capacity to call him on it. Right. On anything other than instinct and logic. <laughs> but there's no, you know, there's no rule book out there saying, no, that's, that's not how marking works. I'm not like a regular scientist. I'm a cool mm -hmm. scientist. Oh, he's edgy. And so looking into this... There was a study done this year, 2023. Right. I love how far we've come. <laughs> I love finding papers or news articles from this year. Where I'm like, oh, I want to look into that. Oh, and the universe yeah. provides. You know, <laughs> it, I do think this is a little bit of an aside, but you did the exact same thing with your thesis that you were doing yes. for grad school for yeah. your thesis flavored project. Yeah. And to me, that's the the most exciting thing about it is. You can look at any one of these areas of study and go, that's very niche. That's very specific. That doesn't, that doesn't have like broad applicability necessarily mm -hmm. on its face. And people are still out there, you know, doing the work, yes. doing the field work, and, writing the oh, papers. I love it. Getting I love published, it so peer much. reviewed. Yes. So, so no matter how obscure it is, we can still go out there and find breaking news. Yeah. There's weirdos like me out there who are like, Let's do this obscure niche yeah. thing because I like it and I want to know. Yeah, and not just a few. <laughs> it is beneficial, like, but... <laughs> enough to jam an elevator. Yeah, there's totally. There's dozens of you. <laughs> Yay! So in so, this study, they were looking at wolves' response to dog urine. Right, right. So they were laying out samples of wolf urine, dog urine, and then water as a control. And they wanted to see what the wolves would do in response. And so naturally, the wolves are going to have more of their time invested in the wolf urine over mm -hmm. the dog urine. Makes total sense. Well, why does that make sense? Because like, it, it's it a... sounds on its face like it would make sense. Like wolves yeah. are more interested in wolves than dogs. But like, Well, wolves why? are very territorial. And so scent marking is a way to say, this is my territory. Back the f*** off. Mm -hmm. And so if, if that's kind of biologically what you're doing, that's your sense of communication to other conspecifics, then you're going to recognize that over urine from another species. So dogs are a different species or yeah. dogs are kind of genetically rewritten to be far enough away from wolves that they wouldn't be recognized. As... Yeah, they're they're so far removed through the domestication process. Okay. Um, so on several levels, it's Yeah. an obvious outcome, but they're doing they're doing the work. Yes, totally. And so the wolves do 
you know, sniff the dog urine, mm-hmm. they they do notice it. And the thing is, when they were watching the behavior, most of the time the wolves are sniffing and are kind of like, mm-hmm. cool, that's there. Following that, the next most frequent thing they see is overmarking, so peeing over what they smell. Mm-hmm. And then they also do chemical signals with scratching at the ground. Sure, sure. Kind of like cats. They've got their own little glands so that when they scratch, mm-hmm. that's yeah. a, a marking of its own. Yeah. And so them sniffing is going to be the most common behavior you, you see, according to this paper. And so it's kind of like if they sniff dog urine but are kind of like meh about it, what would they do from a totally like removed right. primate species? I mean, it's hard to say, but like my attitude toward it is you know smelling it even less than the dog urine like are they even going to overmark it who who knows would but they, i think it's less likely would they even recognize it as urine or a mode of communication like in this area mm-hmm. they're probably not familiar with too many animals so they're like their inventory of scents and and coded messages would that even include humans and what you'd find in a human mark i mean since there are the native peoples up there There would be a sense of encountering human chemical signals, but it's, you know, they have very sensitive senses of smell. So it's kind of hard to determine what their Mm -hmm. library of sense is. (laughs) And because of that, that's why the urine of conspecifics is going to stand out is you have all these scents, ignore the ones that don't matter and hone in on your conspecifics, your prey, those kinds of things. So it's it's unrealistic that they would make a priority of remarking wherever he's marked. Yeah. It's unrealistic that they would balance their marking against his. Right. And it's completely invented that any of that means anything in a social communicative way. Yeah. And then you have the tips on like camping websites. You got REI and all these other right, things right. that are like, we actually recommend you not urinating near your campsite because it can attract bears and other predators in an aggressive way and so it's like you know that shows this chemical side of it but it seems like it's more akin to bears than wolves but then i tried to find like actual science on it and it's just kind of like lackadaisical and so in um, any event anyway he really builds a house of cards on this whole encounter (laughs) he does because they're, they're getting to know each other they're building respect Yeah. And of course, these are, again, tame wolves, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. raised and trained in captivity by a a farm zoo place that basically rents out different exotic animals for films. They it's it's really clever the way they do it, because it's mostly filmed like a nature documentary. Mm -hmm. And then the wolves are periodically looking at the camera. Now, in real life, it's probably because they've got like their trainers and their handlers are all there and they're calling to them. Mm -hmm. But in the movie... They can edit it together to really add a, a visceral realization of what the author has written, which is they're, they're acknowledging me. They're looking at me. Mm-hmm. We're communicating. Again, you know, that strong, silent stare down where yeah. you can see there's an exchange of respect. Mm-hmm. The, this is really, I think, the, the sharp turn up in that <laughs> to, that's going to release the roller coaster of anthropomorphization and, and bad science. So he's watching this den and this one wolf, but he does notice that there's a mate and a couple of puppies. So he's like, score, I'm going to watch this family unit. What are they eating? I'm sitting here next to their den and Papa Wolf goes out at night to, as he calls it, make his rounds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Well, he's probably hunting and you don't think to follow him. You're just sitting there like, oh, he's, he's going to bring it back to the right. den. And and in context, <laughs> he's already established. Yeah. He has to go pee in this big circle every night mm-hmm. because that's our understanding. Mm-hmm. So it kind of presents as him assuming, oh, he's making sure I haven't, you know, overstepped my bounds. Yeah. Not thinking critically at all about the many things uh wolf might be doing when it leaves its pack right and so he's watching them and just kind of like how could they possibly be feeding themselves (laughs) and i'm glad they left this out of the book out of the movie sorry because in the book i don't know even how like i read this in the book and i came running to you like oh my god Mm -hmm. he bakes the wolves not just one loaf of bread but five loaves of bread and it's like you know it's a carnivore. You're watching to see how, like, if they're hunting caribou, to what extent. And you just are like, well, I'm going to make them bread. Oh, those poor <laughs> wolves. I haven't seen them eat a single caribou. Mm, I'm going to make them bread because I'm smarter than them. Like, they can't possibly fend for themselves. Again, this is his outlook <laughs> towards everything. The guy yeah. who flies him out, a hick with a heart of gold. The native Inuit who rescues him from certain death, freezing out in the middle of a frozen lake. A noble savage. These wolves, who he's here to study and not interact with. Helpless. They need his help. They need his special Mm -hmm. (laughs) down-home, whatever, cornbread. Mom's mom's bread recipe. (laughs) Just like grandma used to make. And With raisins. You know, we're constantly talking about all the f***ing supplies he's tossing off of the plane at various Mm -hmm. points in his journey but he has flour and yeast and some way of baking bread like well i'm pretty sure he was doing that what's well he's probably got a dutch oven well i'm pretty sure he has a dutch oven but i'm reasonably confident he's using an oven at uh, his friend's house probably who rescued him again just making himself at home uncle jack's here to stay but anyways he does finally notice that the wolves are kind of running around hunting these little tiny rodent things. Mm. And he's also noticing that there's infestations of these little mice or what have you in his tent. Again, you got to hand it to the Foley because they clearly just went to a lab, got a bunch of mice, threw them, you know, by the handful into this tent set yeah, and then filmed them. And so it's, it's a, you know, shot of all of his gear. They're in his boots. They're on his table. They're in his pillow. And then you get that Foley with that, you know, Little teeth and little little feet pitter-pattering across. Yeah. Delightful. Uh, and so he embarks on his little side quest of, can these tiny mice sustain a full-grown mm-hmm. wolf? This seems improbable. It's such a small prey item. <laughs> da, 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 da. And so because he's the best scientist, he's like, well, why don't I eat mice and see if I can be sustained on it? And therefore, it's a good diet for the wolves to maintain themselves, which there's a thousand different problems with that logic. Break down the top three. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So there's humans are omnivores. They're not full on carnivores. Can I rep, can I an omnivore with a completely different biology sustain myself eating nothing but mice, arctic mice or shrews or whatever they are. Just entirely different dietary needs. Again, without questioning his premise of they are living entirely off mice Mm -hmm. and even if they were, what does it tell us if a human can also do that? Right. Number two. Number two is going to be the risk of zoonotic disease. Ah. We 
our first guess, you and I, was hantavirus. But mm-hmm. when I looked into hantavirus, which is really a common virus in rodents that oh, can yeah. be transferred to people. And so looking a bit into the history of hantavirus, it seems like it's first noted in North America a few decades after this book takes place. So it's, it, you know, you could argue, is it a real threat or not? Is it a threat in the subarctic? I don't mm. know. But, you know, there's going to be other zoonotic diseases you can get from any animal when you eat them one would think he would know better than to just start <laughs> munching granted he's not eating them raw <laughs> thank god he makes uh, a real big deal out of it in the book he writes a recipe how to prepare an arctic mouse what stew it's like mouse with cream like creamed mouse creamed mouse and it's just like the grossest so, I mean, all of it's gross. It just right. is so problematic. But again, he, he plays this so, so well mm-hmm. because he's making this bold observation like that can't be true, can it? Yeah. Well, obviously he thinks it's true. And so he's going to take you along on this journey yeah. and he's going to pretend to be incredulous about it. Yeah. So that when he's convinced and you're convinced by proxy, mm-hmm. it's like, well, that's beyond all reasonable doubt. He, he didn't... <laughs> He didn't go into this thinking he'd be eating mice, but circumstances demanded it of him. He had to eat mice to see if a wolf could eat mice. He just had to. And sustain himself through the long, cold winter. Yeah. And finally, our third problem is actually the way that he conducts his experiment. Like, Mm -hmm. putting aside him just running around eating mice, you know, (laughs) why not bake yourself a loaf of bread? I don't know. Because science... (laughs) So the way he goes about it is, they, and they don't go into detail on this in the movie, they just show him catching mice, stomping them, killing them, however, cooking them up, making himself a fancy little dinner with like a napkin and everything. Like yeah, he has yeah, this little yeah. moment. Again, of, the humor. And there's all these mice around him just staring at him and he's like growling at them like, aha, I killed your friends. Yeah. And it's, again, anthropomorphizing. It's a very long sequence of all the little mice looking at him like it's something out of Snow White or uh, Cinderella. Yeah. And he's looking around while he's eating and he pulls a little bone out of his mouth and he looks at it (laughs) and he looks at them and then you see him turn the corner and start again fully. You hear the in his mouth and he's... (laughs) He's chewing on the slurry and he's spitting out bones and he's growling and he's making eye contact with all of them. The humor, I find the humor exhausting. The scene goes on too long. And again, it's the kind of thing that would make some, someone of, of his contemporary age just go, ooh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Do you want to know the recipe, Norm? No. Well, I'm sure you do. Yeah, yeah. I, yes, I at least and. want to say it out loud. So, 12 mice for this <laughs> one cup of white flour so he's got his flour for his bread there's some consistency um, there yeah one piece of pork belly or salted pork <laughs> salt pepper cloves and ethyl alcohol do you see a problem with this norm d- other than its disgustingness other than it being disgusting and somewhat violating the premise of uh only eating mice he's thrown in an entirely different animal species for yeah. protein and flavor exactly pork belly yeah or bacon or whatever he had yeah that's a pretty big compromise of the entire premise of the study that he's supposedly going out of his way for it really makes you question a was he actually doing this b is is he actually trying to test this or is he just going to make this wild claim and c Mm -hmm. did he throw the recipe in there for laughs like 
kind of the the written equivalent of the visual in the movie where it's like did he really lay out a tablecloth and pretend he was having fine dining just as a as a way to underscore the hilarity and absurdity of living off of mice right did he put this recipe in there just for giggles <laughs> who knows he's and clearly he a crazy person that you shouldn't have pork in a recipe that is supposed to be a scientific control well and the thing is that he even so at some point his you know, native friend gives him eggs because he's concerned that this crazy white man is out right. there eating mice. In in the book, this happens. Yes, yeah, sorry, it's in the book. And so Farley takes the eggs, you know, just wanting to be grateful and that kind of yeah, thing. Just and he ends up, he does end up cooking them into an omelet that he eats. And he has just the audacity to say in his book, <laughs> this will not affect my experiment. He straight up says that. Yeah. Which is like, no. One hundred percent. It would, even if the pork didn't, which it does. <laughs> yeah, you can't just go from mice to eggs and go. I'm eating exclusively mice just to see what happens. Well, Except what happens is you get bored and you eat other stuff. Yeah, obviously, because you're an omnivore. But that's that's his whole approach to everything, mm-hmm. and I think that really it shows why the book has remained popular since it went into print, but only among the non-academic community. Because yeah. all the people with a scientific background, not just those with like an animal studies background, mm-hmm. they all immediately tear it apart and they just go, well, this is fake. This yep. doesn't hold up to scrutiny. This isn't historically accurate. This isn't yep. possible. And people like my English teacher just go, what an amazing narrative about a man having a bond with a wild wolf. <laughs> yeah. If it if it were sold as fiction, then I could see that, you know, call the wild, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's billed as a memoir and continues to be read and circulated as at least semi-factual, you know, right. to the best of his recollection, mm-hmm. it's completely dishonest. Yeah. And I think you can see that in the way that if you pause for even a second, you go, that's not how the scientific method works. That's not, not how you do a all. controlled study. Exactly. But it plays well. Yeah. Pork belly yeah. recipe. He eats eggs because he's got to keep up social pretenses with the mm-hmm. one guy who lives there. Yeah. No. That's not science. That's nothing. So one of the thing one of the things I wanted to look into. So wolves do supplement their diet in summer with smaller prey items like right. like mice and little right. rodenty things like that. And so at one point, you know, he's concerned about them sustaining their health on mice. At one point he he notices that one of the wolves eats he says 23 mice. And so I wanted to look into okay, if we know what wolves need to sustain themselves to sustain to be in that maintenance phase. Yeah. How does how does this track this 23 mice? He's been spewing all these numbers about wolves the entire book. Yeah, he's very that specific in the not, book. They're not true. As though he is making observations yeah. in a little notebook. And so, it's most likely that these are deer mice based on just a couple of things I was looking into and reading and just kind of right. seeing what he's saying in the book here and there. The region, the description. Yeah. So it's like, okay, wolves for maintenance need about 3.7 pounds of meat daily. 3.7 pounds of meat yes. daily. Mm-hmm. And so a deer mouse on average weighs between 0.59 and 3.88 ounces. So ounces. that's Yeah. So 0.04 to a quarter pound. They're itty bitty teeny tiny things. So yeah. Yeah. So if we're generous a quarter pounder. Yeah. So if we do some very sophisticated math, 
to see how much 23 of I these things it's called would... multiplication. Uh, it's all coming back to me. X's and timeses. <laughs> so 23 mice would be anywhere between 0.92 and 5.8 pounds. So if one of these mice weighs somewhere in between that mm-hmm. interval, then they should be getting enough pounds of meat to have right. that maintenance for an average so it's, wolf. it's theoretically possible for them to yeah. eat enough mice in a day based on the numbers mm-hmm. he's throwing around. Yeah. To sustain themselves. Yeah. At least for a day. Yeah. On these deer mm-hmm. mice. Yeah, they can't do their thing where they gorge in a huge meal and then live off that for a few days. Right. But they can maintain. And this, again, I did, I looked into this and did the math because at this point I've lost all faith in him knowing what he's doing or yeah. being a reliable narrator. And I was very surprised and, you know, given him credit for, he. I mean, he probably didn't know any of this at all. But well, it's still fun to find out like, oh, look, here's something that's true. There's a kernel of... If not truth, then plausibility here. Yeah. He's going out of his way to really highlight, I know it sounds crazy, but these wolves are eating mice. They're harmless. Mm -hmm. And that's where his whole diet comes from. Yeah. But it it holds up to at least the most basic of scientific scrutiny. Yes, absolutely. So he does have an agenda in making that claim, regardless of whether it's entirely or only partly true. Totally. The point that he's making is, I'm as surprised as you are, but I didn't really see him living off caribou. Yeah. They're not the problem. Mm-hmm. And so after fun times in Mouseland, <laughs> it's getting closer to fall. He's noticing more wolves come by, which wolves tend to kind of break apart during summer. They're tending to their pups and everything. And then the larger packs reconvene going into fall. And so he sees the pack come back together, you know, sees that they're antsy trying to leave. So then he finally... Decides to follow them. See where they go when they leave their Yes. And he goes with his native buddy because, again, he can't be trusted to do anything worthwhile in the wild on his own. So he's bringing his native friend to do it for him. And we should probably probably explain. We keep calling him native friend partly because we keep bouncing between the descriptions of the action that happened in the book Mm -hmm. and how they're adapted and condensed and whatever. Yeah. And for... Some variety of reasons. There's two different native characters. Yeah. And their names in the movie are reversed from what they are in the book. It is the most horrible reversal imaginable. It has been such a confusing moment for me reading this book. <laughs> it was just... So here's... It confused my tiny little lizard brain. Here's here's my theory based on the the type of movie this is. In the book, the guy who actually lives out there... And mm-hmm. doesn't kind of part time it back in the nearest town. Mm-hmm. He has an anglicized name, mm-hmm. and the guy who's kind of pulling double duty has an Inuit name. Mm-hmm. And I think they changed that for the movie because they think it's going to play better to have the guy who is actually his guide. Yeah, the the one who's truly roughing it and lives full time yeah. out out in the wilderness, having mm-hmm. the Inuit name adds that exoticism to it. I think that's I think that's a good theory. I. I imagine that's accurate. Well, and, and this is a theme that I think they add mostly. They they kind of invent for the movie, mm-hmm. whereas in the book, it's it's not. He doesn't explore it as much because it's a much more interesting on nuance thing to <laughs> to look at. But the guy who it's Mike, right? In the in the movie, this guy is Mike with the uh, anglicized name. You're talking about the main, the younger guy, the one that comes back and forth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the our main homeboy is Utek. And the one going back and forth, his family member is Mike. Right. So in the book, that's 
Swapped. switched. So but Mike in, lives out there full time, and Utek uh, is coming and going. Yeah. Younger generation. But so we'll we'll stick to the movie terms. Yeah. <laughs> so for movie term purposes, Mike is a hunter. Yes. Not he's he's a full time hunter. He's not like a a trophy mm-hmm. hunter per se. Yeah. He sells trophies and pelts and stuff. Yeah. And so the the tension that they're exploring in the movie is here's this guy with this heritage of Utek who has a, a deep affinity for the wolves and mm-hmm. kind of serves as a guide to the area. He has to reconcile making a living the only way he knows how mm-hmm. in this, you know, kind of impoverished, sparsely populated area mm-hmm. by selling the local exotic things, yep. wolves, pelts, whatever, mm-hmm. animal trophy bits. Yep. He has to reconcile that to his relationship with Utek, yes. who lives off the land and lives in balance with that that region, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So Farley Mowat is pretty crass and insensitive toward both of these guys. It's it's horrible. Throughout yeah. the book. I think that comes across in the movie in different ways. And we find ourselves relegated to trying to go, uh, well, is it Mike or Utek? Are we talking about the book or the movie? Right. There's, there's really four human characters. There's the bush pilot who flies the narrator out there. There's the narrator, mm-hmm. Tyler in the movie, Farley Mowat himself, the author in the book. And then there's Mike and Utek who play name swap between the the book and the movie. Right. So we find ourselves using the next best descriptor, which is the local native person or the native hunter who's yeah. pulling double duty. Yeah. It's rough. It's very confusing for both of us. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, it it's just me, that kind of movie. It drives me bananas. So anyways, Mike, our traveling hunter, mm-hmm. because that is what he does, informs Tyler hey, the caribou are starting to migrate south, so this is going to be a good time for you to watch the wolves because yeah. they're going to go out and, right. you, you know, You know the whole point of herd. you being here? Yeah, exactly. Now you can actually do your and job. And so Tyler goes out with Utek, the native he's been staying with. The local, yeah. Yes, to go find the caribou and hopefully the yeah. wolves alongside. This guy lives there, so he kind of knows their, their usual migratory yes. pattern and he can kind of help point him in the right direction to Mm -hmm. go watch some caribou and see if and how the wolves are gonna interact with the caribou yes and so they go they set up camp they're doing their thing and cue another scream and constant rewind fast forward (laughs) constant rewind for us is yeah. Tyler goes on a little swimmy swim and mind you this is a Disney movie and I know it's the 80s and it's a crazy time but Tyler goes skinny dipping, mm-hmm. which, you know, don't get your clothes wet in the subarctic. Makes sense. Yeah. Good but good survival advice there. When he jumps off the cliff into the water, you can see his Like, you can actually see it. And, like, I think we rewatched it at least three times just to be like, can you see it? Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And just doing all these freeze frames. Hats off to the actor for this. Because oh, totally. The, I mean, he's he's a legit actor. He, he overall does a good job. In he this does movie. a fantastic job. I he reminds me a little bit of Hayden Christensen in the Star Wars prequels. In that, I think he's a very capable actor, and he does a great job with the direction and script that he's given. Yes, so I would agree. He has to really ham it up, you know, doing this broad comedy <laughs> stuff, doing the voiceover as written. Mm-hmm. You know, he has to spit bones out at the mice. Yeah, all this stupid stuff. He has to pretend to chug tea and go pee on a stump. But he also does this very real Jeremiah Johnson, 
naked and afraid stuff. Yeah. So they've got him. And he's not just going for a swim, by the way. The reason you get the full body shot is because he's cliff diving. Mm -hmm. It's like straight out of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He jumps off a cliff, Mm -hmm. you know, several times, say he's 5'10 or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's several times his height. Yeah. That's something else I noticed when we kept freeze framing it. He's taking a, a real it's a big jump. A real jump. And he's got to do, you know, the pencil shape. I can't to... even imagine the how cold that water is. And pop, I just pop. I just saw Instant of vasectomy. Jack from Titanic. It hits you like a thousand knives. Exactly. <laughs> but the thing is they're shooting on location. This is yes. actually outdoors. He's actually naked. Mm-hmm. And he's actually jumping off a I don't know, 30 foot cliff or something. Something. It's insane. Yeah. So again, <laughs> we're we're not just perverts here. It's fascinating on several levels. But they're doing this throughout the entire movie where this poor actor is just doing In the real the elements. thing. Yeah. No no digital effects, no real trickery. He's just naked cliff jumping. Do you think he actually ate mice? No. Didn't go the full Leo DiCaprio eating Absolutely bison not. liver thing. If for no other reason than... Antivirus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you went over the many reasons why he should be doing this. But from a filmmaking perspective, it's it's rarely beneficial to have actors eat real food unless it's really important to a scene. So right. he was probably eating some kind of oatmeal with little prop bones. And even then, he was probably still spitting most of it out between takes. Yeah. But the physical stuff you cannot deny. Yes. This guy went on location to northern Canada in varying states of dress, jumped into water, ran mm-hmm. through snow, played with dogs. Played a bassoon. We didn't even <laughs> touch on the bassoon. Yeah. This is another kind of recurring character <laughs> bit. Among yeah. all the things that he didn't throw off the plane he to be able to make weight. He trusty, dusty bassoon. He makes a big deal in the beginning of how underprepared he was by his team and how they didn't pack the right equipment. And, you know, they gave him all these fax forms so that he can requisition more equipment. And he's just like, oh, how silly of them. Ha ha ha. Bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he packed his bassoon. Which is not a small instrument. No. For those of you not familiar, it's kind of like a skinny black saxophone. Right. So you kind of blow horizontally. And the pipe of it goes up and down. And it's, you know, it's... the size of a human torso. Yeah. Vertically. He should have just brought a cello. Like... Well, no. And again, this is the <laughs> bullshit thematic, you know, on the nosedness of this movie. This is a this is a vignette that they have recurring through the film. Once you discover he brought his bassoon, is he plays the bassoon mm-hmm. and the wolves howl. He's communicating with them. Right. He is one with the local animals playing his stupid f***ing bassoon. Yeah, and the thing is that you'll see people, you know, out in the wilderness and they'll howl and they will get a pack to howl back because Mm -hmm. that's, you know, a pack communication thing. So it's like, why would you bring the bassoon to, like, why not just howl at them? But I guess he truly doesn't know what he's doing and I guess nothing beats the cold nights like playing the bassoon. (laughs) Yeah, nothing keeps keeps loneliness at bay. (laughs) Warm inside and out. No, I think this is, again, thematic because the bassoon is a it's a reflection of him. Right. It's something personal that he brought. What a specific instrument to bring. Like anyone could have brought a guitar or something. Right. You know, you expect that even a harmonica. Mm -hmm. But a bassoon, that's a real double take. (laughs) You brought a bassoon (laughs) to the Arctic. (laughs) But it makes it personal. So it's not just any jackass in the forest 
howling and getting a howl back from the local jackals. Mm -hmm. It's this guy's voice getting a response from the wolves. It's something personal. And he's actually playing music. You know, he's good at it. It's not just a lark. Yeah. Even though it's exactly the same in effect as me just going and having all the neighborhood dogs bark. He's starting a band. Yeah. He's playing the music they're singing. It's just this motif of him <laughs> bonding, just being himself and realizing if you go hang out with wolves and you're just true to yourself, you'll make friends. Mm -hmm. It's after school special. Jesus Christ. So he does his cliff dive and then he hears and then sees the caribou herd migrating right. and he just runs flopping around naked. This, this is great into too. the caribou herd. He, after he goes for his swim, he's just out sunning himself because it's plains now, right? He's not in a snowscape. Yeah. So he's, he's put his little ankle high boots back on and that's it. And he's sunning himself in the grass. Mm -hmm. So it's probably the warmest he's been in a while. And then, I'm sorry, I have to, I have to really give credit to everyone involved in this sequence because oh, it is, totally. it's easily the coolest part of the oh, entire movie. It absolutely. From is. a filmmaking standpoint. No, I think from every standpoint, it's the. Well, I hate the reason why they do it, but I'll get back to that. Mm. So directly after that uh, cliff diving scene, you know, he's, he's sunning his taint on the planes. So <laughs> he's just out there by himself. You know, he feels them. They show up. The caribou are coming. And pretty quickly, it becomes clear that the wolves are hunting them, mm. right? And that's part of the reason why the herd is on the move. And there's this, I should have measured how many minutes it is, but it's minutes long. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a quick sequence Oh yeah, of this guy, nude except for his boots, mm -hmm. running in an actual herd of caribou. Yeah. Well, it's... It's reindeer, which are domestic caribou, right. but, so you know. So for filmmaking for purposes, <laughs> they are caribou. Yeah. A domesticated caribou is a reindeer, and it's the same place where they got the wolves from, yep. right? They they leased, basically, this group of reindeer, and the, the way that they tell it is they spent almost an entire month of 12 to 20-hour days just trying to push the herd of reindeer back and yeah. forth so they could get it, they could pick up enough shots to edit this sequence together. Right. And you can kind of see it. It's kind of like the nightmare wolf attack sequence mm -hmm. where there's a lot of camera angle changes, a lot of quick yes. cuts, but it's not fake. Right. Like the only fakery that's going on here is editing, which, mm -hmm. well, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that they're domesticated and not wild caribou. But which, other than that, yeah. this dude is out there playing his thighs like drums in a <laughs> herd of caribou. Yeah, it's... It's pretty remarkable. I remember as soon as that scene started, oh, I was man. like, Norm, you need to look into this because how did they do this? That's the this thing. is absurd. It's almost more exciting to hear that they just did exactly did what it. you saw. Like there's there's no green screen. No CGI. No digital yeah. You would never do that today. No. You, it, it just wouldn't happen. I mean, for practical terms, if nothing else, spending that long getting one sequence is insane. But like you talk about a money shot. This is it. Yes. Because these, the reindeer, you can really only see like the tops of his shoulders mm -hmm. and his face. Yeah. Like they're that they're big. They're tall. You mm -hmm. know, these are not cows. These are these are big, big animals. animals. And he's just running back and forth. Beautiful sequence. Yeah. Incredibly ballsy of everyone. But yes. I think particularly the actor, because even though they're domesticated. Yep. And even though they're not actually in a stampede moving at full tilt. It's still, you're surrounded by all these huge hooved animals. You could not be more vulnerable. And they're on location. 
Like they're out in the middle of nowhere. So yeah. what happens if he gets trampled? He dies. Hope you got that Disney money for a, a air ambulance to haul him back to wherever. <laughs> so incredible sequence. But again, from a filmmaking standpoint, in terms of the narrative of the movie, the way that it's edited makes it pretty clear that he's out there sunning his taint. He hears the caribou coming. <laughs> he sees the herd and he sees that they're being hunted by, I think, three members of the pack. The three adults. Not not a large pack, but the wolves are hunting them. You know, they haven't gotten one down yet. Yeah. And visually, he never really acknowledges it. It's never stated. But visually, it seems like what they're trying to communicate is he's so tight with the wolves by this point that he's helping scare yes. the caribou herd Absolutely. to enable them to hunt. Yes. So not only is he violating every <laughs> scientific <laughs> and ethical and professional principle here, but this he's he's doing this stupid dances with wolves yes. fern gully nonsense and where I he's think like that's also... I'm a wolf now. I'm part of the pack. Instinct took over and as yeah. soon as I saw him, I started running in there to try to separate the herd or yeah. you know, change the direction so that they can mm -hmm. get an advantageous position on him. Yeah. So they take this beautiful, incredible, mind-blowing sequence that should never have been possible to film and they use it to really drive Further, home yeah. the worst narrative and just factually <laughs> facetious parts of the entire story. Well, and now that I think about it, talking more extensively with you, I, you know, and I think you'll agree about this, but it seems like the reason they chose him to be nude for the scene is to further cement that in of like, yes. I am an animal. We are close. Yes. I don't need human clothes. I am a wolf. I'm He's a wild animal. Yeah. Yeah. He's I am fully feral. in touch with his inner wolf. <laughs> He's out there naked. Yeah. Absolutely absurd. And then the wolves do end up nabbing a caribou. So he finally sees them kill one. Right. And I'm just absolutely shocked he doesn't go up and start tearing into the hide with them. And I'm, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I feel like they show that it's... They, they make it reasonably clear that it's one of the... To the extent that they can with mm -hmm. a reindeer. But they make it clear that it's one of the weaker ones. Yep. It might be sick. Yep. They, they establish that the wolves aren't the ones carelessly, recklessly overhunting caribou mm -hmm. and wrecking the yeah. delicate biome here it's people it was people all along because it always is yeah you know what i don't even have a problem with people being the villains because they are in real life and they usually are in movies mm -hmm. but the way that they arrive at that conclusion is built on so many faulty premises and self-indulgences <laughs> and and just patronizing condescending Totally. Nonsense. Totally. That yeah. it feels incredibly unearned by the end mm -hmm. for, for him to go, well, now I'm a little wolf boy and I live in northern Canada and I hate people and I love wolves and I'm, I'm the best native that ever natived. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there, buddy. That's, it's a big fat f***ing nail. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of subtlety here. No. And it's made all the more frustrating because there's a great movie here if only they'd put a different story underneath all the filmmaking that went into it. Totally. Yeah. So humans killed the wolves. Tyler now hates humans. Well, kind of. They yeah. they express it in a, a scene that, to their credit, uh, or to Farley Mowat's credit, is yeah. not in the book. It's completely made up for the movie. But the bush pilot comes back having won the lottery yeah. and is talking about setting up a resort to bring, weirdly specific for a fake sequence, but... He wants to set up a resort in northern Canada to ship up Japanese tourists mm -hmm. to sell them magic water on the premise that yeah. the natives blessed it or the ground is 
spiritual or whatever, which is a weird, <laughs> a weird comment to put in the mouth of a made up villain in your movie when yeah. that's exactly how your protagonist has been treating his buddy Utek the entire time. Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bush pilot gets in a showdown in his plane coming to pick up Tyler and bring him home. Tyler fires a shotgun. Well, he's not even, he's there of his own volition because he's just like, oh, we all thought you were dead. Yeah. So it's like, it's not even that it was a rescue mission for Tyler. He just shows up on his own because he knows where all these remote places are because he's right. a pilot. And then he's just like, ha we thought you were dead. So we just yuck, said, yuck. you. After I get these tourists home, I'll come back for you. And Tyler's just like, no, I don't want to go. Don't I'm a little wolf boy. <laughs> so sure enough, he comes back and as he's flying across the lake, Tyler, yeah. I thought I remembered it as a warning shot from watching this in 10th grade. Mm -hmm. It looks like he's aiming at the plane, which is, yeah. a, again, a weird out of nowhere turn to take this character and the story. Yeah, he's just he has his gun and he starts shooting yeah. at this dude's plane because, you know, you're going to scare the wolves. Yeah. And well, and, you know, the humans are hunting the caribou absolutely to this insane degree but then by proxy also hunting the wolves because they're trophies and they're valuable mm -hmm. so you can hunt the caribou and the wolves for two separate reasons and sell both of them to the same person right. and get all this money for pelts as well as that caribou meat. is the more interesting movie that they could have made here mm -hmm. the perverse incentives and the challenging relationships that different people can have with the area. Mm -hmm. You rely on it for your income as Mike the Hunter. Mm -hmm. You rely on it for your income as the bush pilot, who mm -hmm. doesn't really seem to respect either his customers or the environment. Yes. But he knows his way around, and he's the only one who can get in and out and has discovered all these places and can recognize the beauty and appeal of them. Yeah. The relationship that people have with the land and the animals is super interesting. Yeah. And that's not what the movie's about. At all. <laughs> and they don't explore it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty much the end of our movie is humans are hunting the animals. Tyler's shooting at the humans. He finds his little wolf friends again at the den. And Tyler and Utek just juggle together, like legit juggle together. And that's... How we end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After everything Utek gives him, he finally gives something back to Utek, and that is teaching him about juggling. Jesus Christ. Which was never something he was shown doing before, and it has no bearing on anything in the movie. That's just the final scene. Fine. Okay. Good. So before we wrap things up, there is, as we mentioned, some issue on if this is fiction or yes. nonfiction, as far as yes. we can tell. Like I said... It was published as a memoir. That was back in, what, 63? Uh, yeah. 40-something years later, I'm reading it in 10th grade English, and it's still being presented as a memoir, mm -hmm. and it is given to us by our English teacher as such. And she acknowledges some people, you know, this was controversial, or some people disagreed with this, mm. but always with the tone of sort of... The way your history teacher would be like, some people were afraid on Christopher Columbus's ship. They thought they were going to sail off the edge of the world. No, they <laughs> weren't. That's never been true. That's just such a lovely lie to add depth to the narrative. Absolutely. So. So looking further into this, there's a, a piece from one of the biologists that worked with Farley. Right. He, right. he writes just this little couple page, you know review if you will of his book so he was the chief mammologist with the canadian wildlife service at the time 
He publishes his little thought piece about a year after the book is released. Mm-hmm. And there's multiple inconsistencies. So during the book's time, Farley was assisting this biologist with this caribou study. To be clear, the book and the movie have Farley out there braving Solo. it. Jeremiah yes. Johnson. Farley was one of three scientists that were assisting in the caribou survey Assisting. in the subarctic. Not exactly. even the lead scientist. Exactly. So, and Farley was the one that was assessing wolf predation on caribou. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that part is accurate, but he was there with multiple other pe- people because they're doing multiple studies. And why would you have one yokel doing all of them? Yeah. He was not trained in anything plant related or anything scat related. <laughs> At all. This whole time, he's on this guy with all of his supplies that he's chucking off the plane and all that. Mm. And, and he's also sitting there like, I have all these supplies, but nobody trained me to use them. Why the f*** do I have this thing? Why the f*** do I have that thing? But he made his own list of supplies that mm-hmm. the government then bought for him. So him complaining about everything he has is like, well... You did this to yourself, Brady. Yeah. <laughs> like, he I don't really, know what to tell you. Book and movie, it's presented as, oh, these these government bureaucrats just don't understand what I need. They're giving me random tools for no reason and without explanation. No. Yeah. In real life, you were one of a group and mm-hmm. you requisitioned everything that you got. He also only worked for six months with the federal, federal government in Canada. That's the entirety of Which his, is his career. <laughs> So, yeah, he's not even with the federal government for that long. Such a short amount of time. And, and probably he... <laughs> most of that time he's doing this survey, but not the cor- over the course of like a year like it's portrayed in the book. It's portrayed as or a, a movie really long time. Well, less so in the book, but even yeah. in the book, he makes it sound like he's there across seasons, yeah. you know. And what this biologist, his name is A.W.F. Banfield, does say is coincidentally while working in ottawa farley reads the book the wolves of mount mckinley and the similarities between this book and the one that farley goes on to write is apparently just uncanny like he farley names the wolves that he's form you know quote unquote forming a bond with Mm -hmm. the same names as the author of this other book and so it's like you know he there's just blatant like truly historical inconsistencies here (laughs) that this biologist is calling him out on and there have been multiple articles that just kind of keep cropping up over the years about how inaccurate this portrayal is and it's fiction and like in in 2012 farley has an interview with the toronto star and he does say says he's taken pride in having it known that i never let facts get in the way of a good story and so again, he's <laughs> such a spin master. Yeah, because he's making it sound like, well, of course it wasn't a hundred percent accurate, but the spirit of the true story mm-hmm. is there, and I'm I'm embellishing certain details to to make these scientific realities more accessible <laughs> to people. Like he's still having it both ways. Yeah, while kind of half-assedly acknowledging that he lied. Yeah, he cut real people out. Yeah. He completely rewrote the contributions of mm-hmm. other people who he does acknowledge. Yeah. He completely misrepresents what he's there to do and how he's doing it. Uh-huh. He fabricates who knows what proportion yeah. of his observations. Well, and in the beginning of the book, before he sets out on this journey, he's talking about the other scientists he's working with, and he's just <laughs> all over them. Like, he's a real 
people about these scientists yeah. of just like, oh, these people in the lab running data aren't real scientists. Biologists want to be out in the field on the ground. They're the scientists. Well, again, and it's, it's like, I'm sorry. Where is science without your data analysts? Right. F***ing nowhere. It's a team sport. But that's also that classic boomer Stephen King. Everyone's uh -huh. an idiot except for me because I'm a writer. You know? <laughs> I, I couldn't be bothered to get all these facts straight because I'm an artist and I have a way with words. So I had to write my book that was kind of a knockoff of a book that happened to also be about wolves that I was reading at the time. Oh, buddy. Just... Complete <sighs> vacuous nonsense. So... Hey, it was very entertaining. It how did bring... many Katie points? How many Katie points? Well, so... I will say that it's great that this book and movie did bring attention to wolves and their biology. And so it, it's kind of permeated society of like how cool wolves actually are and not yes. just this caricature. They're evil. Yeah. Kind so. of trying to counteract the big, big bad wolf cliche. Mm -hmm. It succeeded, but mostly by misrepresenting the facts. <laughs> so the, there's, there's truth to the conclusions, but they're presented through completely fabricated observations mm -hmm. that's a that's a complicated legacy yes so my ranking on this and i don't mean for it to be like so on the nose is i call this movie a husky mm -hmm. you see it and you're excited it's like it's this wild thing Ooh. man versus nature just like oh it's beautiful and mm -hmm. it's just wild and majestic majestic i want it and to there, look at me and there are people who are really into it but then when you kind of start to peel back the layers, you're like, ooh, is this something we should be doing? Mm -hmm. So when you think about a husky, you get those those crazy husky owners who are like, you know, <laughs> buying huskies by the bucket full. Mm -hmm. and, but then when you actually get a husky, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't so great because all they do is scream and run and destroy things because they're meant to be sled dogs, not sitting in your apartment, Karen. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just like, ooh, on the surface it looks, looks good and you have people defending it. But then it's like, is this really such a good idea? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So the most interesting part of this is the read the back of the jacket and go, oh, wow, this guy went and spent time watching Do wolves your and research. challenged his perceptions. Do your research. Go in knowing your things, but then still appreciating the creative liberties and kind of the story right. that they're telling. But, you know, having a bit of background knowledge is never a bad thing, uh -huh. especially when it comes to f***ing huskies. <laughs> <laughs> or wolves, for that matter. Wolves are cooler than huskies. So I, I think I mentioned at the beginning that the real hero of this movie is the Foley audio because mm -hmm. they've got beautiful silent photography and all the character and all the storytelling comes from the audio that they re-engineer and mix back into the whole mm -hmm. story. But I think I don't like hating movies. No. And I don't hate movies because they're bad because anyone can swing and miss. Mm -hmm. What makes me really hate this movie... <laughs> Is there's so much that's good about it. Yeah. There's so much technically good. The acting is good. Mm -hmm. Basically, everyone involved who isn't trying to tell the story of Farley Mowat is doing a really great job. Yeah. And so I hate this movie because it could have been so great. And like I said, there were genuine themes that they could have explored. And it didn't even have to come to a conclusion. A mm -hmm. more interesting, very gently re-edited version of this movie would present the facts mm -hmm. of all these people and their relationships with wolves 
and the complex social lives of wolves. And it would let you draw your own conclusions and just kind of go, it's a messy world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And it's so close to being that, just this raw photography of the awesomeness of nature. And instead we get, you might be wondering how I got here. (laughs) Classic 80s. Just a bucket of the the worst voiceover cliches and the most self-indulgent white savior narrator hero. His little cardigan-wearing, pipe-smoking bassoonist. He goes from being just an absolute pencil pusher to being such a good native that his buddy Mike, who hunts for a living, he asks him, are you going to kill my wolves? And he says, no, but I want to because they're good ones. Mm -hmm. The subtext being, I'm such a good little wolf boy that even the people who have prior claim to this... (laughs) To this land and its resources, respect me and my mysterious relationship with the wolves. F*** this guy. Uh. F*** this guy and his self-indulgent sense of ownership and spiritual yes. enlightenment. Yeah. And someday we're going to watch an actually good wolf movie, I hope. Oh, me too. That would be so nice. <laughs> <laughs>